Spring is in full swing and summer is just around the corner. A great time for a beach getaway at the Oceanfront Boardwalk Plaza Hotel in Rehoboth Beach, Delaware. Enjoy the best of oceanfront accommodations and amazing dining right on the beach, both with great views of the ocean and boardwalk. Enjoy a soak in the heated indoor spa pool or book the adults-only concierge level and relax in the rooftop hot tubs. Book online at boardwalkplaza.com or call 800-33 beach thanks to the boardwalk plaza for being the bridge podcast network sponsor story jumpers welcome to another exciting episode of your favorite storytelling podcast are you ready to hear a great story of course that's why you're a story jumper home isn't always what we dream it will be 11 year old sierra just wants a normal life After her military mother returns from the war overseas, the two hop from home to homelessness while Sierra tries to help her mom through the throes of PTSD. When they end up at a shelter for women and children, Sierra is even more aware of what her life is not. The kind couple who run the shelter, Mr. and Mrs. Goodwin, attempt to show her parental love as she faces the uncertainties of her mom's emotional health and the challenges of being the brand new poor kid in school. The longer she stays at the shelter, the more Sierra realizes she may have to face an impossible choice as she redefines home. This middle grade novel offers a compassionate look at poverty, homelessness, and hope. You'll walk alongside brave Sierra as she holds on to a promise she believes God gave her, that one day she will have a real home. But what if that promise looks far different than she has ever dreamed? Enjoy this reading of Hotel Oscar Mike Echo by Linda McKillop. Chapter 1 I've never heard a promise from God before, but a couple years ago, these words came into my head from nowhere, and I thought maybe they were from him. Sierra, you're going to live in a real nice home someday with a stove where all the burners turn on and the bathroom always has hot water. You'll have your own room to decorate any old way you want, and you won't share anymore with your mom or sleep in her car in the Food Savers parking lot. I'm still holding on to that promise so tight my fist hurts sometimes, because if I let it go... It won't just be the promise that disappears. I'll disappear too. A home like that mostly seems impossible. But if we don't believe in miracles, what'll happen to us? I'm thinking about the promise while I do my cooking show, Cooking with Sierra, on a stove where only one burner works. I'm trying not to think about how mom hasn't come home for two whole nights leaving me alone. And I'm not talking about the kind of alone where she ran to the grocery store for an hour or to the post office to mail a package to friends still serving in Iraq. When she came back from the war, I thought we'd never be apart again. I was so wrong. Standing on a rickety stool so the counter comes up to my stomach, I face the camera, meaning the light switch on the white wall by our apartment door. Thanks for being with me tonight, everyone. For this show, we're going to make a pasta dish that all y'all will love. I try and sound like Barefoot Contessa or Giada De Laurentiis, two chefs my mom loved to watch when we had cable. I smile at the light switch. I hold up some onions with long brown sprouts growing out of their ends. All the food I could find in our cupboard sits lined up real nice in front of me. 
package pasta, some tomatoes in a dented can, beans in a rusted can, chilies with dust on top of the can, and spices. In the apartment upstairs, someone starts dribbling a basketball over my head, and I'm afraid my viewers won't be able to hear me. Then a police car zooms down the street with its siren blasting, its lights turning the walls of the apartment red and blue. My face stays frozen in a smile, like I'm not hearing anything but the sizzling hot oil in the pan behind me and that scrub-clean stove. When I'm worried, I cook and clean. I don't bother telling my viewers how mom's left me alone again. But I do tell them I'm pausing for a commercial break for just a minute. Don't go anywhere. I'll be right back. It's getting dark earlier and earlier these days. Too dark for my viewers to see me. So I push the switch for the chandelier over the kitchen table and three out of the six light bulbs light up. In the living room, I click on the two small lamps. Then I return to the show. If mom allowed me to turn up the heat, I'd do that too. But she likes to keep it at a nice shivering cold 65 degrees. When you pay the bill, Sierra, you can turn up the heat to any old temp you want. Back at the counter with the clean kitchen behind me, I say, the more color in your meals, the better, repeating advice from all the cooking show chefs. They've taught me how to throw weird ingredients together to make dishes that taste pretty good. More colors mean healthier food, and that's more pleasurable to the eye. So tonight, I'm making Sierra's Chili, or as I like to say, Sierra's Charlie Hotel India Lima India. My viewers know why I talk this way. After pulling the skin off the onion and chopping it up real good, I walk back to the stove that looks like someone built it in 1958. I'm careful not to trip on the gold floor tiles coming unglued so I don't bump the pan with hot oil and get burned. Now I like to get the oil sizzling before I add the chopped onion. Then I cook the onion and I add the chilies and beans and everything else, stirring it up good. The oil splatters a little on my hand when I add the onions and stuff. I run cold water over it for a minute. Mom's never told me not to use the stove when she's not at home. She must think Eleven's old enough to cook. After I add all the other ingredients, I hold up the pan for my viewers to see, smiling at the camera. Then I wave my hand over my shoulder to tell them to enjoy the ocean view outside my window so they won't feel bad about the scratched cabinet doors wanting to fall off the hinges behind me. It sure smells golf Oscar Oscar Delta in here. To make myself feel less sad, I decide to fix up my table tonight to look like the TV chefs. We don't have a tablecloth, but I take a dish towel with some tomato stains and who knows what else on it and spread it out on the table. Then I put my plate down on top of it, fold a napkin, set it next to the plate, and put down the silverware on top, with the fork on the left and the knife on the right. For a decoration, I use my special container, a mayonnaise jar filled with beach sand, shells, and other things I started collecting when me and Mom visited the sea to help her get better after being in Iraq. She told me on that trip that someday she dreamed of having her own restaurant and I could work there with her. I pick up the jar and twirl it around to look at my memories. On that trip, the promise felt like it would wander up the street at any minute. I put the salt and pepper shakers on the table next to the jar. Then I sit down in front of my meal, unfold my napkin, and put it on my lap the way Grandma used to do when I lived with her before she got sick. I want to say grace, like she always said, but I'm on TV. Instead, I take a bite. Looking straight at the camera, I moan a little before telling my audience they should be here because it's the best thing I've ever tasted. I wish my friend Chef Giada was here so we could enjoy this yummy recipe together. 
Mostly, I want her here so Giada could talk real friendly to me while I eat, telling me how happy she is to see me. Before dinner, she might even help me put the food on a platter. Then I slam the rest of it into my mouth because I'm starving. If I can't talk to Giada or Mom, I think about calling my dad after dinner and telling him Mom still hasn't come home and I'm scared. We haven't talked in a real long time now. And now that he has that new family, but I know what he'd probably say. Gee, Sierra, I live hours from Richmond. How do you want me to fix this new mess your mom has made? Besides, I have this new, beautiful wife and her nice new kids, and we're about to have a delicious dinner. I probably would be able to smell a roast cooking over the phone line. After finishing Sierra's chili, I look at the numbers on the phone. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe he'd be worried about me, and he'd say he's on his way. Keep the doors locked, and don't worry, Sierra. Maybe he'd even tell me he was sorry for leaving us. Or maybe he'll just sound like someone getting a call from a bill collector rather than his daughter and tell me about his busy life and how he drives so far to work. You sure this isn't your overactive imagination, Sierra? I hit the phone's on button, and that's when I hear it. Nothing. The landline is dead. I couldn't call him if I wanted to. I bet mom never paid the bill. I put the phone back down on the kitchen counter. It'll hurt less if I never hear how he's not interested in me. I call my brother Stephen, but no one has his number. He booked it out of town to live far away out west near deserts and cactus, never looking back. My brother, who's all grown up and flown the coop, as mom likes to say, when mom's cell phone worked, he sometimes called. Outside my door, I hear men talking in the hallway. Someone knocks on the door, then tries my doorknob. I put my finger over my mouth to, uh, to the audience so they know we have to be real quiet. Finally, they walk away. Later, when my show is done and I'm washing up my dishes, I hear a man talking with a deep whisper that sounds like a bowling ball rolling, rolling down the hall. A key clatters in the lock and I freeze. My heart thuds so hard my audience probably would have seen my shirt move. If I was still doing my show, I duck down behind the counter and hold my breath. Chapter 2. The door opens and Mom calls my name. I pop up from behind the counter to see her bringing in a man I've never seen before. They're holding hands. I want him to leave November Oscar whiskey so I can talk with my mother. My fists open and close and I try to relax my jaw so I don't look like the furious daughter I am. Being mad might make her leave again. You're back, I say. My voice is flat as the dish rag tablecloth. Hey, girl, Mom tosses her purse on a chair by the table. Man, it sure smells good in here. What you making? She weaves over to the sink to give me a hug, smelling funny. Her hair looks like it hasn't touched a brush in days, and she's wearing the same black sweater I saw her wearing before she left two days ago. The man stays near the door, staring at me with wide open eyes like he didn't know I was going to be here. He turns his hand over with his palm facing up like he's asking mom a silent question about who this girl is in the apartment. Oh, Billy, this is my daughter, Sierra. She tries to act all huggy with me, but I slip away from her and I fold the dish towel a special neat way like grandma would have. Sierra's a real good cook and it smells like she made us dinner. Then hit me with some food, Lori. He comes inside and closes the door, scraping a chair across the linoleum to sit down at the table. He picks up the mayonnaise jar, shaking it back and forth, trying to get a look at the shells. I walk over and yank it from his hand before it breaks. He lifts his hand toward me like he wants to slap me one. Mom's not watching us. 
What I really want to do is swing open the door and point the way into the hall for him to leave because I need to talk to my mom, Alpha Lima Oscar November Echo. She lifts the top off the chili and waves it toward Billy. What have we got here, Sierra? Sure smells good. Chili, I answer. Smell that, Billy. This'll hit the spot. She's talking like she's cooked the meal for him, and it was just one of the many dishes piled inside our refrigerator. No words come out, and I just fold my hands so tight together in front of my stomach that the blood is bunching up and not flowing anymore. She pulls two bowls out of the dish rack and scoops up some of Sierra's chili, bringing it over to the table to offer to him. When she sets down the food, she spills a little on Mr. Billy. Hey, watch what you're doing, he snaps, brushing the spill onto the floor. Then he doesn't even wait for her to start eating before shoveling the food in his mouth, holding a spoon in a way that says he has no manners. When his bowl's empty, he pushes it away. Got any dessert, he asks. I storm off to the bedroom, ignoring Mom's call for me to come back. I missed you, girl. Come talk to your mama. Homework, I say, closing the door behind me, using all the willpower I could conjure up to close the door without slamming it when I'm feeling furious. In the room, my bed looks like someone, me, made it in a hurry by throwing up the quilt without straightening any sheets or the blanket underneath. It's not how I normally leave my bed, but I've been in a hurry in the mornings. Mom's bed looks like it was made by someone who once had been in the Army, the way they teach soldiers to tuck the bedspread in so smooth and tight you can't see one wrinkle. Mom's slippers and boots sit lined up neat on the floor besides each, each other near her bed. Her clothes are hung in one small closet we share, but my clothes are tossed on the end of the bed. My pajamas are crumpled on the floor because I was late for school this morning. I pick them up now and step into them to get ready for bed. Mom says the military taught her to be neater than she was before she entered the service. She was so proud to be in the Army, but they gave her pain in her leg and all those nightmares after an attack on one of her rescue missions. She never talks about it, but she always seems to be hurting. You can tell by the way she scrunches up her face sometimes and doesn't really walk normal anymore and needs lots of pills to feel okay. Feeling bad for her makes some of my anger calm down. After putting on my pajamas and throwing my dirty clothes in the hamper, I kneel beside my bed like my grandma used to do. Please, God, make my mom better. And if that promise came from you, could you make it come true soon? Then I climb under the blankets and I cover myself up tight. I barely slept all night. The man left right after I went to bed, but I pretended to be asleep when Mom came in the room and lay down on her squeaky twin bed. I was too Mike Alpha Delta to say anything to her. She got herself all comfortable and didn't move again for the rest of the night, unlike me who practiced speeches in my head that lasted about eight hours long, speeches where I tell her what it means to be a mom and how you don't leave your kids alone and you feed them when they're hungry, and speeches to my dad telling him how you don't replace your children with other children. The next morning, I take my clothes to the bathroom to get dressed, and I eat a little of the leftover chili for breakfast. Mom stays asleep while I stuff my books in my backpack. When you walk to school without any sleep, one mile can feel like a million. Sometimes I walk with my neighbors, Jasmine and Rachel, but not today. I let them walk on ahead so I could be alone. We've only lived here a few months, so most of the time I am alone. The day goes by in a blur. I shuffle to art class and work with Jasmine to make a paper mache mask. She makes a cat, and I make a look-like of barefoot Contessa that doesn't look much like her. 
Then we all get rushed out of the building when someone pulls the fire alarm. Outside, I stand with a couple of girls who talk about other girls who I don't really care to talk about who looks fat in their jeans and who's wearing too much for makeup for her age. Later, I fall asleep on the lunch table until the bell rings. I shuffle to another class and nod like I'm okay, and I shuffle some more, and the blur wraps around me like there's only darkness in front of me and behind me, with no way to get out of the black, foggy life. Sierra, do you do your math homework? My head snaps up to see Mrs. Rice pointing at the blackboard during fifth period. Can you show us how to solve this problem? Solve a problem? I can't solve any real-life problems, but I can solve math. After jumping out of my seat, I scratched the chalk answer on the board to 83.47 divided by 5 equals 16.694, wishing my life could be solved by a division problem. Great job, Sierra. Problem solving is your gift. I want to laugh at those words. At the end of the day, when I leave the building to walk home, the real fun begins. Mom's standing in front of her car out in front of the building, giving me a big old wave like we should be happy to see each other. I know this can't be good. Usually, Mom looks young, even pretty when she cleans up, unlike some of the other kids' moms who look like they're as old as a grandmother with gray hair, tired faces, and worn-out bodies. But today, I'd almost swear she's as tired as everyone else. And then I catch a glimpse of our car. And all of a sudden, I feel sick to my stomach. Story Jumpers. Can you imagine facing one problem after another like poor Sierra? Seems she's leading a really hard life. I've got someone here who can help us fill in more of the gaps in Sierra's story and tell us why she might be living this way. Welcome, Linda. Thank you, Andrew. It's wonderful to be here. Well, I'm really glad that you came to share Sierra's story with us. But, you know, I I really felt like she was just facing all these difficulties. Are there kids in situations like that? You know, there are a lot of kids who end up living in foster homes or they have parents for different reasons that struggle to take care of them. Um, some of them are... Um, There are children who actually have parents in jail or uh, who have just struggled with poverty, um, and it really affects kids. And so that's Sierra's dealing with a lot of those issues with her mom. Yeah, I could tell. And my heart really went out to her. So I look forward to hearing the rest of her story and hoping that, you know, God answers that prayer that she put before him. But first, I had a question. Why does Sierra use all these strange sets of words just to say what she thinks or feels. Like in one one instance, she said, Mike, Alpha, Delta. And I mean, she could have just said she was mad, right? She could have said that, but she loves to, to talk in the military um, lingo. Her mom was in the military, and when her parents were still married, they if they had a secret to keep from Sierra, they would spell it out through um, through military language like that. And um, so Sierra finally deciphered it when she got a little bit older, and now she thinks it's fun. And she learned that her name, Sierra, um, is the, the word that they would use for the letter S in the military alphabet. So she notices those words that are in it. How neat. Yeah, to really like have a code language that you can use to talk with your friends or even talk with your mom and dad. That would be pretty cool. So what inspired this story about Sierra? 
Um, I have had a chance to uh, tutor men and women that are that have come out of homelessness. And my husband and I actually teach parenting in a jail. And so when you're teaching parenting classes, you're hearing all about the kids and you're learning their stories, which often are very hard. They're embarrassed about where their parents are. They're sad. Some of them are mad. Um, and... Um, so I, I just began to think about a little girl who was going through this. Um, I had a friend who lived in this neighborhood where the story takes place in Richmond, Virginia, and worked with a lot of kids that were dealing with, um, with poverty um, and, and hard home lives. And they would tutor them or teach them cooking classes. And so just as a fiction writer, my, my mind was putting it all together. And then one of the fun stories that happened was while I was walking in my neighborhood, for which I like to do, and I was brainstorming the story, I kept seeing an older gentleman and a young girl riding their bikes past me. And they would ride right down the middle of the road and they would be just engrossed talking to each other. And he was white and she was black. And I started to think, what could their story be? Is that her grandfather? Is that a neighbor? Just a friend? And um, and I did what fiction writers do. And I kind of switched it around. And I made Mr. Goodwin, who is black, and Sierra, and who's a young white girl. Um, and this is, and I, the, the fun part about, I mean, many things are fun about that, but I never, once I decided who they were going to be in this novel, I never saw them again. It was almost like they rode right into my life and right past me. Um, they inspired a story and, and now they're gone. But so this becomes an actual scene in the novel where Mr. Mr. Goodwin likes to take the kids in the transitional home out for bike rides and just to befriend them and um, show them care. Really cool. Sometimes angels walk into our lives like that, don't they? Yes. Yes. That's a nice way to think of it. Yes. So Sierra also has a pretend cooking show. I love cooking shows because I love to eat <laughs> and I like all the different recipes that they show us and the interesting ways that you can fix food. But for Sierra, this is like an imaginary cooking show. She's not really hosting the show. Why was this an important thing to show where she is having an imaginary cooking show with imaginary viewers? You know, a lot of it is her personality. She's going through um, a very hard time where there just isn't enough food in the cabinets. And she's scared. Her mom hasn't let her know where she is. And she hasn't seen her mom in a time. Um, and Sierra used to love to watch cooking shows when she stayed with her grandmother. So she saw that some people have very nice kitchens with lots of food and they make fancy meals. And this is a way she calms herself. And it's... Um, it's a little bit of a coping mechanism when she's scared and lonely. And if if you've ever heard of children who have an imaginary friend, I think it's often uh, because they're lonely. And so she doesn't have an imaginary friend. She has an imaginary audience that she talks <laughs> with. Wow. Well, that speaks volumes. I mean, if you had one imaginary friend because you were lonely and Sierra has a whole audience, her little <laughs> heart must be broken. Yeah. Which... Yes. You know, that brings us to another point. Sierra prays to God that he would help her out of this situation. And she believes that she heard a promise from God about where her story was headed. Why did you include that particular uh, interaction between Sierra and God in the story? Hmm. Um, she... 
I think it gives a hopeful tone to the story all through scripture. God gives promises. He's always with us. He'll never leave us. He saves our tears in a bottle. And this is a more personal um, promise that she believes she's heard, that she's someday um, going to have a different life than what she has. So it's these are kind of adult lessons. You know, she's learning about what it means to trust God when you don't see the outcome. She's learning what it means to wait um, you know, we many of us pray for things and we wait a long time to see them come to fruition. Um, she is learning, She's it's giving her hope. So she has something to hold on to when things around her look kind of hopeless. Mm. We could all learn a big lesson from Sierra, couldn't we? Yes, we could. She seems to be wise beyond her years. Now, Sierra's mom... She struggles with her memories of being in the Iraq war. And that happened many years ago at this at this time. Um, and so if kids don't know about the Iraq war, they could probably talk to their parents about that, find out more about it maybe at the library. But how has living through that war um, affected Sierra's mom? And then all the struggles that her mom brought home from the war, how does that affect Sierra? Mm-hmm. It's affected Sierra in a lot of ways. Her mom has um, memories that cause her to feel very panicked and very scared. And the memories are really vivid in her mind. Um, and because of that, she struggles with her emotions and um, just being stable. And so Sierra, it's affected Sierra because they, her mom struggles to keep a, a job and hold down a job because of her emotions and which then affects them because they don't have enough food and the rent isn't always paid. And then it affects Sierra because sadly she in some ways begins to take care of her mom when it should always be the parents that take care of the children. And so she, she's always trying to comfort her mother and calm her. Um, and it's made her, as you said, wise beyond her years. But you you really don't want children to have to do that at that age. Yeah. Yeah, I completely agree. Well, now, someone steps into Sierra's life that makes a complete change for her. And you mentioned just a moment ago what inspired Mr. Goodwin. But when mm-hmm. Mr. and Mrs. Goodwin step into Sierra's life and, and the change happens, mm-hmm. what makes that couple so special? They are special because they are everything that Sierra would love in a family. She would have loved her parents to stay together. They didn't. Mr. and Mrs. Goodwin are stable. They have a strong, long marriage. They have been through hard stories, which comes out a little bit in the novel. They talk about their past, but instead of those um, experiences devastating them, they, uh, they, remain strong and they found strength in God. And so they're able to care for other people. And so um, they are a delightful, loving couple who also, they also have, they insert rules into Sierra's life and her mom's life. And sometimes rules can not, can feel unloving, but they're all meant in, in the Goodwin's case, they're all meant to teach stability and um, to be, to be loving and give structure to their lives. So very interesting. Now, did you ever spend or your husband spend any time in the military? Um, no. <laughs> no. No. Well, we have you we have, have a friends. handle on that military communication, so I didn't know. Yeah. That's inspired by a friend whose grandfather is actually a 
he was a three-star general and and sometimes we would we would just jokingly spell things out that way so that's what inspired it for us so well that's neat there's all kinds of things that inspire authors and and some authors i i believe they live these adventurous lives whether it's in an in their imagination or whether it's you know through things that they learn to do when they're younger is there any kind of interesting or fun adventure that you took where you learned to do something out of the ordinary I would think one of the most adventurous things that I did was I learned to water ski with alligators. And what? that <laughs> And that was in Florida on um, the Tomoka River and friends friends had a boat and they would go out water skiing and the alligators were there but they would always say, "Oh, they're afraid of the motor." You know, it's okay. It's okay. But looking back, I think that was a little crazy. That was a little crazy. That was a little crazy. Yeah. <laughs> Well, you survived to live to tell about it, so I guess it wasn't that bad. Uh, but you know, wow, what what a neat adventure that was! That's a cool story to share. Thank you. <laughs> well, Linda, I really appreciate you taking the time to come and share Sierra's story with the Story Jumpers. And if you come out with another book, would you come back and share it with us? I would love to do that. Thank you for having me on. Parents, Linda McKillop writes stories for both adults and kids. She and her husband, Bill, raised four sons in a book-filled home with nightly read-aloud time. Her favorite read-aloud place is a tent, preferably on the water. After living in Virginia for many years, she now resides outside Chicago in an empty nest. Linda earned her MFA degree in creative writing from the Rainier Writing Workshop and strives to put life's broken pieces and people together again through stories filled with heart and charm. You can learn more about her at lindamckillop.com.